If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Amen. It's great to be here. Thanks to John Byan. Oh, Brian. Brian. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I also want to say thanks to the team, the, the worship team, for introducing me to that song, Our God Reigns. I think the technical term is a banger. Uh, that is, um, that was, a, I loved that song. Thank you very much. So uh, let's pray before we get into it. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Today we remember you. And we worship you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would change us, challenge us, encourage us. We ask that your spirit will be here today as we reflect on your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a little while ago, I read a really fascinating book called The Secret of Our Success. It's by an anthropologist called uh, Joseph Hemrick. And in this book, uh, he kind of reflects on humans. And I love humans. Uh, I'm really fascinated by humans. And um, in this book, Hemrick argues that one of the secrets to our success as humanity is our ability to accumulate wisdom over the generations and pass it on to the next generation. So each generation, says Hemrick, doesn't need to kind of solve all of life's problems, but we can inherit it from, inherit solutions from the generation before. And one of the ways that this wisdom is passed on, Hemrick says, is, is by imitation. We look to people and we learn from people and we copy what they do. And as a result, we can inherit their solution to a certain problem. Imitation is how we learn survival skills in any given environment, how we learn skills in our workplace. Imitation is how we uh, learn how to pray, how to dance how we learn language. Imitation is how we learn to cook the food of our culture, of our people. Uh, in the book, Hemrick uh, talks about um, this uh, tribe, the Tucanoan tribe in uh, Colombian Amazon. And he talks about this process of learning by imitation. And what he says is the Tucanoan tribe, part of their staple diet is the, the cassava plant. Now, the cassava plant is great because it can grow almost anywhere, and it, it grows a lot. 
and it's full of carbs, and it's a, a good staple food. The only problem with cassava is that it's kind of laced with cyanide. And so there's, there's, this is a problem uh, for people. And the, fortunately for the Tucanon tribe is that over the years, they've learned a process, a very sophisticated process of removing the poison from the root vegetable. And this process takes like three days. It involves scraping, grating, boiling, shredding, and leaving out to dry. And so each Tucanoan villager doesn't need to wonder what to do with this plant. He looks to his mum or to his dad and watches what they do. He doesn't even need to know what's happening behind the scenes, this removal of poison. He imitates and he does well. Imitation means that we don't need to resolve the problems of life, but we can inherit the wisdom of those who have gone before us. And it's because of the importance of imitation in our lives that I guess we, we have a propensity to look for exemplars. I don't know if you, my, my boy Eli is here today, and you can see his eyes. Who can I learn from? Who's got skills in this area? And this is what we all do. We all look through life and we say, I've got this problem. Who, who can I emulate? Who can I copy? Remember when everyone in the, young, in the youth used to wear those WWJD bands in the church? Yeah, what would Jesus do? And there's a sense in which we as humans, we kind of have many of these bands. Potentially, we have many of these bands. Anyway, what would so-and-so do in this situation? You know, what would Tim Keller do or Danielle Strickland do in this theological dilemma? How would they interpret this passage? Or or, or what would um, Heidi Baker do in this moment of uh, dealing with someone who's vulnerable? Or what would my intellectual hero do? Or what would my entrepreneurial hero do here? What would my auntie do? What would my father do? It's worth me saying on YouTube to the world that I really do want to be like my dad in some ways. You know, he's composed and honourable when things are difficult. Sometimes I think, I go through life and I face something, I think, what would my dad do here? And I want to suggest that many of us are walking around with exemplars who we are thinking about as we go through life. And they shape the way that we might respond or the way that we think we should respond in a given situation. And I think it goes quite deep because this is worth... This is worth thinking about, because these exemplars not only inform the way that we think, but they might also inform our desires. And this, of course, is what advertisement has done. It's kind of hacked our brains. When you put Beyonce in an advert drinking Pepsi, it's not because she's a great scientist or a great connoisseur. It's because people look to her and say, this woman is strong. This, this woman is successful. This woman is beautiful. This woman can sing well. In, in areas of life, I want to be like her. And when she drinks Pepsi, all of a sudden, in me, for some reason, I want to drink Pepsi. Their desires become our desires. If this is true, then it's worth considering us today, individuals, who do I imitate or who do I want to emulate? Who are the exemplars in my life who might even be shaping my desires? You know, this is really important for us as Christians. If the Christian faith is about our affections, our desires, our heart, 
it's worth considering who might be informing us and the way that we think. Now, the power of imitation and the importance of emulation is not lost on God. God has, for a long time, understood the importance of imitation and emulation. Think about Jesus as he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did he say to the hearers? He said, see this Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. Look at the Good Samaritan and copy him. Be like him. The Apostle Paul, six times in his letters to the church, says, imitate me. In Philippians, he says, imitate me and imitate those who imitate me. Paul understands the importance of this transmission of belief, of behavior, through imitation. He goes on to say in chapter 4 of Philippians, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The Apostle Paul understood more than most the importance of the Spirit in transforming our hearts. And yet he also knows the importance and the power of imitation, of having someone who we look up to, someone who we want to emulate, someone who we momentarily lay down our autonomy and defer to in life. These people shape us as we grow. In our text this morning, I want to suggest that Paul does not put himself up to be emulated, but he puts love up. He personifies love. He says, look at love. Love is patient. Be like love. This is the implicit message throughout this whole passage. Be like love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not do this. Love is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude. And in the passage before us this morning in verse 6, Paul says, be like love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but delights in the truth. As we look at these two aspects of love, it's worth us considering to ourselves, will I be like love? Will love be my exemplar? Will love be my hero, my saint, my sage, this person that I put up? Will I be like love? The first aspect then that Paul puts before us today is love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And by putting this in this verse, Paul basically puts a mirror up and says, are you rejoicing in wrongdoing? Are you delighting in some sort of sin? Are you delighting in doing something wrong? Scripture is a wonderful, a wonderful gift to us because we can be challenged, we can be halted in our tracks on a Sunday or in our own devotions. Do I do this thing that Paul has put before us, that God has put before us this morning? And I want to suggest that the delighting in wrongdoing is not a kind of like inhumane love of torturing people. This is something that I think is pervasive in the human heart. I want to suggest what I think Paul means here. This might be something that we all struggle with at time uh, time from time, uh, and maybe even something that we struggle with at the moment. Let me give you two examples of what I think Paul means. I want to suggest that Paul is saying, do not delight in doing wrong 
even though you think it leads to a, a just end. This is one of the most subtle ways in which we might justify doing wrong. Most of us try and be good, don't we? We try and be upstanding citizens. But actually, when it comes to an end, an agenda that we have, we can easily start to delight in doing wrong. The uh, 16th century philosopher Machiavelli wrote this uh, really <laughs> interesting uh, treatise called The Prince. And in it, he, he talks about how the prince can basically uh, abuse and oppress the, uh, his subjects as long as it results in good loyalty and unity amongst the people. Now, we're not princes, and we're not likely to do that, but there is a sense in which Machiavelli, he, he articulates this, this instinct in us where the ends justify the means. And this, for our lives, can easily produce a, a lie here. It's okay, I, I lied, but actually it produced something that I think was really important. In fact, I protected someone here. And in doing so, we don't feel the guilt of our sin, but we delight in it. We are happy with what we've done because it's produced what we needed. I, uh, I remember thinking about gossip uh, a little while ago. I remember being fascinated by the fact that everyone, everywhere, in every generation, has at some time at least been tempted by gossip. Gossip is this pervasive problem in all human communities. And I remember uh, reading something sometime that made me think, and they said, look, gossip, although um, it might be exciting when you're doing it, actually there seems to be a kind of righteous motivation. Actually, if, if I think someone is doing something wrong, I might whisper something to someone else. Actually, that means I'm policing my community. I'm actually making someone who I think shouldn't be uh, as influential as they are less. I'm spreading something about them. Now, this might be wrong in itself, but I'm actually doing something that's right. I'm just whispering something about someone. I don't know what you think about that, but I enjoy thinking about the idea that maybe that's why we feel tempted to gossip, because we feel like it's right, and yet gossip destroys the very thing that it seeks to preserve, a healthy community, a community where there's trust and life and love, I want to suggest one way that we might see Paul teaching here is do not delight in doing wrong. Do not delight in doing wrong even if it fits your agenda. Love does not delight in doing wrong. Love does not dismiss the sin of gossiping, of lying. Let us be challenged by the example of love. The second thing Paul might be talking about, according to commentaries, I must admit to not having seen this myself, uh, but I thought it was, it was quite interesting and it fit with this first section. The second part is we might rejoice in wrongdoing, not the wrongdoing that we do, but in the wrongdoing of others. We might rejoice in the wrongdoing of others because it ruins them. And this, the commentators think, is probably what Paul is talking about because of the division in Corinth. There is division in Corinth, and when people are being ruined and, and being uh, dismissed and being uh, you know, put out because of their sin, it brings delight. And again, this is connected to our disposition where we have agendas, where we have uh, agendas in our family, in our politics, in our church, in our social context. 
We might have agendas and we might delight not only in the wrongdoing that we do, but in the wrongdoing of others as it ruins them. And this, it seems, is quite a human problem. The Germans have a word called schadenfreude, which basically means harm-joy, where we find joy in the harm and the failures of others, where we actually find pleasure in seeing the person who we see as our enemy failing. But God's word challenges us at this point. In Proverbs, in Proverbs 24, verse 17 to 18, the Bible says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the, lo- lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. Now this is a striking passage, because in this passage we see God actually say, your, your displeasure with your enemy is legit. My anger is against this person. My anger is against this person that you see as your enemy. But don't rejoice in his downfall. Do not rejoice in him failing, in him being ruined, in him being ostracized by a community. Do not rejoice in it, lest the Lord's anger turn away from him. And this is a challenge to us this morning. Will we be like love? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing that fits our agenda, in maneuvering people and things to the way that we think that they should be. It does not. Will we be like love? The passage this morning not only challenges us, but promotes something in our hearts, wants to put something in our hearts. Not, challenge, not only challenge something in our hearts, but put something in our hearts. And so love is put before us and says, love does not delight in wrongdoing, but rejoices in or with the truth. And I want to suggest that this is, what, this is precisely what he means. Rather than being delighting in an, an agenda and the wrongdoing that fits it, we love the truth. We delight in the truth. The truth that sits outside of our agenda, outside of our goals and the outcomes that we want. The truth. Love submits to the truth. Love applauds the truth. Rather than being controlled by an ideology or a political perspective, love says, let the truth be known. Let us look for the truth. There are two considerations we might have as we have love as our exemplar here. The first is if we delight in the truth or with the truth, we search for the truth. You know, it's quite easy when we've got our agenda to receive or hear a little bit of gossip about someone that we don't like and we are quite happy to perpetuate it or at least just embrace it as the gospel. Because we have our agenda, we have our biases, but love does not. Love pauses. There is an integrity to love. Love says, I want to know the truth here. I want to know the truth. And this is the bedrock. I mean, this is not a game. We can't, we can't carry on without this being a challenge to us. Because truth is fundamental to any relationship, to any community. This is what we want from our politicians. 
This is what we want from our wives, from our husbands. This is what we want from our church leaders, from our church friends, from our work colleagues. We want people to not be so controlled by agendas. We want them to love and delight in the truth. You know, imagine in a parallel universe that me and my wife had an argument. And imagine even, this is quite hard to imagine, it was my fault. How is reconciliation going to come to our marriage, to our friendship? How is it going to come? It's going to come when I lay down my agenda, lay down the wrongdoing that I might continue in, and say, what is the truth here? What is the truth? The truth is, actually, in this real universe, very often, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I need to look and search for the truth. That is what it means to love. And this is hard. And this is hard. But it is absolutely important. Because we are kidding ourselves and playing a game if we think we can have any meaningful relationships without this being at the heart, at the foundation of what we do. Let truth be known. Let truth be sought after. Not only sought after, but submitted to but submitted to. When love delights in the truth, it doesn't find the truth and then dismiss it. It says, let truth, truth is my agenda. I submit to the truth. And I want to suggest, this gets a bit technical, I want to suggest that the truth that Paul says here is not kind of truth in its broadest abstract sense. Love does not delight in the reality of trees this has an ethical dimension because the context of Corinth is, is the problems of relation. In chapter 1 and chapter 3, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. There's jealousy rife amongst them. In chapter 6, we have lawsuits. In chapter 8 and 10, we have division over food offered to idols. In chapter 11, we have selfishness during the Lord's Supper, during communion. In chapter 12, we have a kind of elitism potentially arising over spiritual gifts. There are problems, relational problems. And so the the truth that Paul talks about here has an ethical dimension. This is why the commentator James Moffat, I guess, he links truth here in Paul to goodness. Love searches for the truth. And this has an ethical demand on us. Let me give you an example. If me and Karina have a fight, and it's my fault, and I search for the truth, when I find that truth that I am wrong, I am necessarily called to repent, to say sorry. When I find the truth, it doesn't just hit me as a fact. It hits me as, a, as, a, as a, an, imp- an imperative. I must say sorry. I must change. I must be more patient. And so the truth here that Paul calls us to, that the Bible calls us to, is a truth that has an ethical dimension. Let me suggest that the truth here is as it relates to God's heart. God does not want us to delight in wrongdoing, but wants us to delight in his way, in his heart. That's the opposite to doing wrong. That's the opposite to what they were doing in Corinth. That's the opposite to what we do when we do wrong. 
The opposite is God's way. You see, the reality is riddled with the will of God. God's will, God's heart. What does God want in this situation? And this is what it means to be a Christian. I I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, I was walking around with my own agenda, doing what I needed to do, whatever it took to get that agenda, to survive, to get by, to hustle. And all of a sudden, I was confronted with the truth. I was confronted with Jesus. I was confronted with who I am, who we are as people, as people made in God's image. I was confronted with, with my sin. I was confronted with the need to repent, with the truth, and I delighted in it. I delighted in that truth. And this is what it means to be a Christian. This is not only how we become a Christian, but how we go on. We say, I, I delight in God's way. I must be challenged as I am controlled by my own agendas, the agendas of the flesh. I must delight in God's truth, in God's heart. Let me give you an example of a time I've been humbled recently. In the recent year, I brought something that was on my heart to one of the elders of my church. And when I brought it to him, he was not, in, he was not positive about it. He was not positive about it. But he said, Dave... I'll pray about this. I'll pray about this. And when he said that, I thought, yeah, right. I know what this means. Basically, I'm going to pray until I feel like God backs up my intuition about this thing. And to my shame, this man who I love and who I respect came back to me and said, you know what, Dave? I think God is in this. I delight in God's truth, in God's heart in this. I am actually challenged as an older man to be to be humbled here. I have my own agenda. I have my own way. I want God's way, and I am challenged that God is in this. This is what we are called to be, to be people who pause, who consider where we may be controlled by our agenda, and when we say, Lord, I search for your truth, and when I find it, I submit to it. I submit to it. Your ways are higher than my ways. Let me, let me suggest, as we come to a close in the next few minutes, that Jesus, who is love incarnate, who is love before our very eyes, who is the greatest exemplar of all, who we as disciples look to to emulate, to imitate, to be like, Jesus did not delight in wrongdoing, but he delighted in the truth, in God's heart, in God's will. He sought after it, and when he found it, he submitted to it. There's this um, brilliant passage in Luke 4. I'm going to read it, and you'll, you'll be familiar with it. It's where Jesus was being tempted by Satan. And he, Satan has just tempted him with bread. You know, turn those rocks into bread. And he turns again, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I want to suggest that this is a a wonderful example of Jesus delighting in the truth. See, Satan knew his agenda. He knew 
that who Jesus was. This is why he came to him. You know, if you are the Son of God, he knew that Jesus had come with an agenda, and he tempted him in a way that we as humans can be tempted. Will the ends justify the means? Will I delight in this wrongdoing because I reach the goal that I came for, the goal that I think is right? This is Jesus' temptation. Will you get your agenda through wrongdoing? And Jesus says, no, I search for, I submit to the truth. God's way. God's way. God's heart. And God's will. 